0: It's so good to be God's people together, amen? Amen, amen. Amen. I would love to invite you to turn to the book of Matthew, there in the second half of your Bible, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be seeing some of these verses on the screen, but if you'd like to follow along, we invite you to grab that Bible in the seat back in front of you and join us in Matthew chapter 5. We are coming to the end of our series called Kingdom Vision, Seeing Through God's Eyes. It's a series on the Beatitudes. The Beatitude is a Latin word for the blessed. I want you to imagine Jesus has amassed a crowd of people who have seen in Jesus the power of God's kingdom in his words and in his actions. Then Jesus begins to from the crowd, call to himself this inner circle of his followers or apprentices. And they get a front row seat as Jesus walks up the slope of a mountain, and Jesus looks at his newly appointed apprentices, and just behind them is a throng of people that have seen in Jesus God's good news. In flesh. And then Jesus opens his mouth to give an introduction to the greatest sermon ever preached. And the first word out of his mouth is blessed. Blessed. You are flourishing, happy, whole. But the people he calls blessed. Look anything but. You're blessed when you mourn. You're blessed when you're spiritually bankrupt without a whiff of religion. You're blessed when you're meek, unemployed, underemployed, overlooked. You're blessed when you're desperate for things to be made right. You're blessed when you show mercy, even when they don't deserve it. You're blessed... When you have within you a sense of clarity and purpose. You're blessed when you step into the messy middle of people's hurts, heartaches, and hang-ups and try to bring reconciliation. You're even blessed when you're oppressed and knocked down and dragged out. The reason we called this series Kingdom Vision is because it takes a certain kind of seeing to reckon that these people Jesus describes are actually flourishing and squarely within God's kingdom. It takes a certain kind of vision that's upside down from the world's vision and values. If there was an MVP list of the movers and shakers, these people would be at the bottom, but Jesus flips it upside down and says, no, 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 no. You are securely within God's reach after all. You're blessed. So, the crowd is gathered, Jesus is pronouncing blessings, and he's looking people in the eye. Which is why it's so important to note what we've been saying each and every week, that the Beatitudes are not prescriptive. Okay, It's not take four of these and you'll find heaven and blessing beyond your wildest imagination in the morning. It's not prescriptive. He's not saying if you just mourned a little bit more, if you were just a little bit poorer and desperate, then you'd really get it. That's silly, but that's how these are often preached and taught. No, what Jesus is doing is casting a kingdom vision, expanding our vision for who's really blessed in God's eyes. So they're not prescriptive, they're what? Descriptive. You, you, you. Despite all the world's evidence to the contrary, you, right there, you, 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 you're blessed. Even if it doesn't look so in the present tense, I promise, you are headed toward a future where God will make right all you experience that's wrong. This is where we've been, and this evening we're going to look at our last blessed. Those who are knocked down, dragged out, but those who stand firm in the midst of persecution. But just for another time, I'd love to read the whole list of the Beatitudes. And they're there with us in Matthew chapter 5. You there? Let's read. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. That's what teachers did then. And he said, his disciples came to him. And he began to teach them. So Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, For they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In our church, we say, This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, Thanks be to God. How many of you, by show of hands, saw the movie five years ago or so called Selma? Selma. It's a Martin Luther King Jr. movie adaptation of the very famous voting rights marches in 1965 from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. It chronicled the season in Dr. Martin Luther King's life where oppression and persecution was really starting to ratchet up. And there on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, they were met face-to-face with opposition and obstruction just for trying to get equal voting rights for African-American citizens. So in that film adaptation, they really chronicle a lot of highlights or lowlights, depending on the way you look at it, because he was so radically oppressed in Martin Luther King Jr.'s life. Now, to say that he was the only person would be a detraction from the other civil rights leaders that helped organize such a momentous march, but he, of course, is the most well-known. And so within the movie, they hit a lot of the pivotal moments in his work of civil rights. And the movie begins toward, um, uh, toward the beginning of the film. It shows him in the Oval Office meeting with President LBJ. And they're sitting down and they're having a conversation and Martin Luther King is saying, listen, from the top down, if you would just ease off these obstructions and make it easier for us just to register, all of this could be settled. And then LBJ looks at him and basically says, I've got bigger fish to fry. Give it time. You'll figure it out. It'll be okay. There he is. Detour. Turns into a dead end. Dead end. Then you have, shortly after that, famous J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director, setting in motion a plot to disrupt Martin Luther King's marriage by exposing different tapes and different phone calls, and he's trying to take him down from within. Then if that wasn't bad enough, Martin Luther King and others do a smaller march toward the registration office, and then he and others get arrested. So it's not looking so good. Then another protester in another space finally gets murdered. So the stakes are continually rising as opposition increases. And I remember one scene in which he was sitting at home in the kitchen table in the middle of the night, and he's answering the phone call as... Death threat after death threat and assault after assault comes through the other end of the phone line. And all along the way, I'm thinking, man, when would I have given up? When would I have said, that's it. Because when you start to make threats on my family, when you start to make threats on my own health and well-being, that's taking it too far. Or when you are in the highest of high positions with the president and nothing gets done, at what point do you just say, well, it's been a good run, let's leave it to the next guy in the next generation? When would I have given up? That's what I'm thinking. Shoot, I feel like that when I'm watching the montage in Rocky and he's running upstairs and punching meat. I'm like, yeah, I'm not even cut out for that, much less persecution and opposition. And it got me thinking, just in the littler ways, maybe you're like me, and when you maybe aren't in the Oval Office, but you're in some office and you Just know you are not being understood by the person who's sitting across the table from you. And you feel just kind of oppressed. They could do something, but they seem to just find ways to make it harder. Or maybe you feel like you don't have the FBI director after you, but maybe you know the sting of that gossip and that slander and those whispers and voices just on the other side of the wall that you are just certain are going to undo you. Maybe you feel like you just keep reaching dead ends and that you're swimming upstream from a current. And maybe you're like me. Sometimes you'd rather just go with the flow and say, fine, I'm giving up. Tonight's beatitude is for those who lock eyes with Jesus and hear the words, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The people that Jesus is describing are the people who stand firm for what's right despite all objections and everyone else's expectations. Jesus is describing the ones who stand firm even when the cultural current is beating down on them and it would be so much easier just to turn and go with the flow. Jesus is describing those who aren't just persecuted because they made some mistakes and they're paying for it. Hear this. Jesus is describing those who are persecuted because they've taken a stand for what God values. They're the ones who have hungered and thirsted for God's way and justice, but they're taking heat because of it. They're the ones who care about what God cares about. They're the ones, and this is important, for which Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Did John notice that this is a beatitude that has the same promise as another one? Jesus bookends the beatitudes with those who are desperate and without a whiff of religion guess what good news, I'm describing you who are squarely within God's kingdom even though you thought you could never earn it. That's the first beatitude. Yours is the kingdom. Then he bookends it at the very end. He says, those of you who have been swimming upstream Valuing God and his way and his kingdom, even when you're taking oppression, even when you're finding yourself under attack, guess what? Take heart. You are genuinely doing it right. Because if Jesus is painting an upside down picture from the world's vision and values, why should we expect it to be easy? Why do we expect our families to understand us when we give sacrificially? Why should we expect your friends to understand us when we forgive and show mercy? Why should we expect our neighbors, to understand us when instead of becoming more and more upwardly mobile, we find ourselves divesting us of the trappings of the ways of the world to go and radically be and bring good news even to the poorest of the poor, the lost, the lonely, the left out. We're swimming upstream. So the reminder for us and where we'll spend the last few moments is this. These are the ones who are awake to God's presence and aware of our place in the story God's still shaping. I think Martin Luther King was able to keep on and stand firm even against the current because he was awake to the presence of the shepherd who doesn't just walk with us in the green pastures, but also the one who leads us through the valleys. I think he and so many others were able to stand firm because they're aware of our place in the story that God's still shaping. They're able to stand firm against the current and look it square in the face and say, this is not the end. Maybe it's not a civil rights movement of the 60s, but maybe it is a radical neighbor love in 2019 to look the cultural current of division and racism and prejudice and hate and stand firm and be aware of our place in the story God's shaping when he's breaking down walls in a kingdom of every tribe, tongue, nation. And maybe we need to practice and live in that reality today even though we've not yet seen it in fullness the invitation for us is to stay awake to God's presence here and now, even in the valley, and to be aware of our place in the story God's shaping. Those are the two movements we're gonna spend the next few moments with together. Kingdom vision, firstly, allows us to be awake to God's presence. Y'all know I love to talk about staying awake to God's presence. To be awake to those moments of revelation even when you wash in the dishes. This is the life he's longing to cultivate within us, to bring ourselves more and more into awareness that he is with us. Last Sunday, I was invited to facilitate a retreat of space and silence from a church that I've come to know and respect, because I've come to know and respect their pastor Church planner Jeremy Pace, who started Christ City Church in East Dallas. So they had been practicing a lot of these tools to help people stay awake to God's presence. Tools like we've done. Lectio Divina, if you've been in some retreats or some different meetings. Guys, if you're going on our Create Space men's retreat next weekend, you're going to do it. You're going to practice it. Ways to help us come into awareness to tune down the noise of our lives in order that God might get a word in edgewise. They've been trying a lot of these different ways of praying and being still. And they said, Adam, why don't you come and just facilitate an extended time, kind of tell us what to expect. Because we're a part of this pastor's group of church plants and different groups in East Dallas. And somehow or another, I'm one of the guys that facilitates this group. And they call me, y'all ready for it, the mystic. Now, anybody who knows me as the pastor of this church is kind of laughing. I would love to own that, but I think I'm too goofy to be a mystic. But the reason they call me the mystic is because I'm trying to live my life in a seeing sort of way, to see God's fingerprints in the everyday stories in which he's writing. And the best ways to do that is to pause just for a moment, whether for five minutes each day, ten minutes each week, or maybe hours each month, to reflect back and become aware of the ways in which he was actually with us even when we thought we were doing it alone. One of the messages at this retreat is a message I'll share with you. It's less about what we do and more about cultivating an awareness of who we're with. It's less about getting all the ducks in a row and the quiet times and this, and more about coming into a place, using those good things to help you come to an awareness, less about what you do and more about who you're with. I think it's like a muscle that gets developed when you begin to start lightly by just recollecting every day as I'm driving, Lord Jesus, Son of God, abide in me as I abide in you. To come to an awareness that He's with you in the car, at the grocery store, yes, even at Walmart. And to cultivate in small ways staying awake that He is with you so that... You may have trained yourself just enough to where when the stuff really goes down, you might have enough memory and reflexology to say, okay, you were with me on Monday, and today is Friday. Would you still be here now? I'm going to put them on the spot, but I think about Aaron and Amanda And when they went through all that they went through with her cancer diagnosis, I remember something I will never forget, and Aaron telling me, as difficult, painful, and heart-wrenching as it is, he says, I believe that God was preparing me this whole year leading up to this moment, and he was a witness to me of staying awake to God's presence, even when the stream was bearing down against he and Amanda, and even at the time we thought, unborn little Wendell. But now we look back and we see even though there's still some more steps to take, more healing to be had, we still celebrate and look back at the ways he walked with them even through that dark valley. That's why I think storytelling is a spiritual discipline. You see all the ways in which the Old Testament is collecting story after story after story, where in the present moment they're living it and they're crying out and they're saying, where are you? Where are you? This is horrible. This is horrible. But when it finally gets written down, you begin to see this undercurrent of like, oh yeah, even then, even in the midst of the assault and the attack, we found that God had not Abandoned us. But it starts today. Not if suffering and opposition and persecution comes, but when it comes, would you have cultivated enough wakefulness to realize that he's with you now, he will with you, be with you even then. It's about standing firm despite all objections and everyone else's expectations. And this is the trick. This actually strengthens our faith instead of weakening it. Because I think when you're able with reflection to tell your story and to look back and see, oh, wait a minute, God was actually there, you begin to ask that question, well, can I trust God to get me through the other side of this? And then you should have a community of faith saying, yes, 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 because remember when? Remember when? Well, can I really trust God to get me to the other side of this right now? Well, remember when he did it before? Yeah, but this is different. Yeah, but our God is creative and still bending all things to newness and resurrection, even if it means death. Yeah, but can God really get me to the other side of this? Because it's not what I want. It's not what I expected. Maybe God is writing a different story And we point to Kathy Kiesler and Sid Kiesler praying and begging God for the orphanage when they were attacked and slandered and persecuted and lied about from the other side of the globe. And it seemed so obvious that we should see God give this orphanage and remain with them and not someone who had made terrible decisions and cheated these children out of money and support that was rightfully theirs. God, hello, the wicked seem to be winning. And yet, the other side of this looked like the Kieslers losing the orphanage. But God is still protecting, providing for, and giving loving, tangible expressions of his goodness to those 60 kids. God did not abandon them even though we didn't get what we thought And what we knew. And Kathy stood here and said, we pray asking that God can. We believe that God could. And whatever happens, we're gonna trust that he knows something we don't. And he loves us no matter what. Can I trust God to get me to the other side of this? I promise you that even if it's death, there's resurrection awaiting those In Jesus. Faith is really just another word for trust. We've turned it into church stuff. But faith is really just another word for trust. Can I trust God? And when God does get you through to the other side. Even with the current coming against you. You're able to trust that he can do it again. When oppression, trouble or trials hit. The trick is that we don't forget. Which leads us to our second movement. Kingdom vision allows us to be aware of our place in the story that God is still writing. The Bible, as I said a moment ago, is a book of stories that's all telling one story the story of God sending a king to rescue a fallen kingdom of his good creation. And a sub-story is this. It's a story of an oppressed people. The story of an oppressed people learning to seek and follow an unseen and faithful God, you ready for it? In the midst of their failure and forgetfulness. Take heart, you who fail and forget that God is with you. The whole Bible is a story about that. These people who have been put upon. Knocked down, dragged out. The whole Old Testament is a story in which they're hearing that God is the true king, the one king, the king above all other kings, the only true God, the living God, the unseen God. And it's a whole story of them being wrecked and ruled over by other kingdoms with other gods. And they look around and say, Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then when they look around and they can't see God because God is a spirit, they begin to kind of say, Maybe. We should do what our neighbors do. And they begin to set up these idols and they begin to hold on to something because they've let go of the unseen God. This is our story. When we can't see him, we can't sense him all the ways that we thought we ought to. When we can't hold on to him, we want to run to the things we can see and can hold on to. And the end game is death and separation and destruction. But here's the other part of the story. When we get there and we start to look just over the ledge, if we listen carefully, we hear the faithful voice of the one behind us saying, come back and find life. When you repent, It's a way of changing your mind about all the crap that you've held on to. All the stuff that you are certain you can't be rid of. When you begin to release it, you change your mind that leads to a change in direction. And you step back into life. And here's the trick. We think that we've got to run all the way back to the one we abandoned. But the truth is, as soon as we turn around, we actually find that he's right there waiting the whole time. You don't have to do the walk of shame The walk you have to do is the next right step. The walk you have to do is to live in the reality that you are in Christ and not one thing can separate you. Even though all this stuff has done its best, could it be that you're only separated from God in your own mind, and your own heart that's been led away by things that are so much weaker and less beautiful and less creative than the one who is longing to be gracious to you if you would just wake up and be aware that the story that you're living and the story that you're telling is a bastardized version of the one he's writing in your life. Would you get one next step to him? But there's this cycle that I find myself in, man, and that's when one person says that one thing I have two choices. Do I lean in to God? Or do I bail out? Is it just me? Man, because that one person said that one thing and it causes me to undo and unravel all this identity as a beloved son that he has built up within me. I am in Christ, but man, if what they said is true, if how they're opposing and persecuting and coming against me is true, You start to drift away and bail out. The task of awakeness and awareness is to lean in and to discern the voice of the one reminding you of who we are. I want you to hear this, hear this, hear this, hear this. Maybe we bail on God because we read opposition as a mark of God's abandonment instead of faith's authenticity. Maybe we bail on God because we read the slightest bit of things not going our way. Maybe we bail on God because we read that word or that understanding of who God might be and how we're at work, all that current coming against us. Maybe we read that as God's abandonment except or instead of an authentic faith. Here's what you need to understand. No one told you blessing your enemies is easy or natural. No one should tell you that forgiving them won't cost you. It costs Jesus his life, and we expect to have not the slightest bit of inconvenience, hurt, or heartache. The peacemakers are the children of God and it's part of our family business. Nobody said that people who are outside of the family are buying what we're selling. Whoever told you that the blessings that Jesus pronounces isn't just a promise for then, but always and forever right now, lied to you. Go back and read this list. And circle all the times you hear will, 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 will. He does not say blessed are those who mourn because they'll never mourn again. He says they will be comforted even if in the present tense you got a lot of mourning left to do. The trick is to be awake and aware that even here, even now, where you are, you are securely in God's kingdom and squarely within God's reach. If you would wake up and look and take the next step, this is what it looks like. Jesus tells us, you should expect it. All we want to do is escape it. Did anybody read ahead in Matthew chapter 5? Has anybody in eight weeks been like, why ain't he gonna read the last two verses of this section? Most people think that the blesseds are the ones that I'm preaching. Lord willing, bear with me, after Advent and our core practices at the beginning of the year, Lord willing, I intend to do kingdom living and we're gonna go verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. But I wanna hit these transitional verses where we should expect persecution not to always escape it. Matthew 5, verses 11 to 5 said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because what? Because of me. Because we're standing alongside Jesus, his will, his way, in the midst of the current Going against us. He says, blessed and rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here's what Jesus is saying. Two things. Hey guys, jump for joy when everyone hates you. Because you're standing in a long line of God's people who are genuinely living for God's kingdom. And when you genuinely live for God's kingdom, you're going to be going upstream for all those who aren't. The second thing Jesus says is this. Your reward in the kingdom is greater than the pain you experience on earth. Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 8. I don't have time to get into it. Read Romans chapter eight. If you wanna jump for joy, run around the house and say, is this for real? It is for real. Go read it for yourself. He talks about how the afflictions are nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. He says, but we're facing death all day long. He says, but nothing, 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 not one thing can separate you. But man, I thought that I was separated. He says, no, 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 no. Wake up, be aware, but expect Challenge not to escape it. Roman Popov, our dear friend, one of my best friends, my dearest brothers, our pastor friend in Russia. He's in the States now, here, there, and everywhere. He was only in Texas for like, shoot, 24 hours, and uh, he'll be with us, Lord willing, uh, on the men's retreat next weekend. He was telling me how basically persecution runs in his family recently. And I said, hey, send me these notes, because I've heard these stories in the last several years, but tell me the deets, give me the data. There are five generations of Christians on his father's side. Ramon's dad is a pastor. Ramon's dad's dad was a pastor. His great-great-grandfather was a pastor. This is his grandfather, Nikolay that I'm going to tell you about in a minute. Ramon's last name is Popov. I never knew this until this week. Popov is a translation of priest man. You know how in the colonies in the early American days they kind of said, "Oh yeah, it's like John's son. It's John's son, right?" He was his family stock was in this area that was owned by the church, and they were called the priestmen's. Five generations of Christians on his father's side, four generations of Christians on his mother's side, at least four of them were pastors and leaders that were imprisoned in a Soviet prison for their faith. All told in his family line of priest mens, decades were served in a Soviet prison under Soviet regime. Rahman's great-great-grandfather died in a prison in Kazakhstan. Rahman's great grandfather on his mother's side spent 17 years in a Soviet prison. And what he says and has said throughout is that their resistance to the current of Soviet Russia was the most natural and second-hand thing for them because they had enough kingdom vision to recognize the distinction of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. If this is not clear to you yet in the Beatitudes, I don't know what will except to keep reading the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is casting a radical counterculture to the kingdom of the world, and it cost them years in prison. This is Rahman's grandfather, Nikolay Popov. He spent 10 years on and off in prison. Five years here, three years there, two years there. Nine kids spent a decade in prison. Persecution runs in his family. They expected it. They didn't think to escape it. This is why we're so screwed up in the West, because we've been told the lie that the good news means you have a good life nonstop all the time and that you shouldn't expect to go against the current, you should just go with the current but let me tell you something, the current that's being fed the American public about what Christianity looks like is more in the current with the capitalism and racism of the world and less like the gospel that Jesus preached of a radical kingdom alternative that tells us to turn the other cheek and bless and forgive and love and sacrifice and touch those that are untouchable and be near to those who no one else wants to be with. It looks radically different from the current so if you find it really easy you might need to consider turning upstream and really taking stock of what Jesus is calling us to John Stott says persecution is a result of the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world is an irreconcilable value system. So take heart in November. Take notice in November. Listen up in November. Anyone who tells you that they've got the corner of the market of the kingdom of God when you go into the polls is lying to you. On either side, they're lying to you. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world may have some slight overlap if Christians are living their faith in places of power. But ultimately, when push comes to shove, these are irreconcilable value systems. And this should come as no surprise to you if you read and see the life of Jesus. He was continually upstream against those in power, even when they said they were doing God's work. Nikolai, Rahman's grandfather, was eventually released when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1987. And he swum upstream, and two years after he was released from prison, he went back to the same prison that he was locked up in. He went back to the same prison, saw some of his same cellmates, and he looked some of the same guards in the eye. And he came back and he preached The gospel of a kingdom in which love triumphs over hate, in which mercy triumphs over justice, and even how justice and mercy embrace when we didn't deserve forgiveness. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us when we turn and find life in Jesus. He looked his guards and oppressors in the eye and told them they can find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And by the way, this woman in this picture is Ramon's grandmother. Her English name is Hope. I'm going to leave you with some questions to reflect on and a brief story. These are the questions I've been wrestling with and might need to sit with. Perhaps you might as well. What are some ways, what are some things that can help you stay awake to God's presence this week? Some of you, that's a couch to 5K app like I need. God's not expecting you to run a marathon tomorrow, but what are some ways to stay awake, practice, train, stay awake to God's presence this week? Is that some breath prayers I can send you? Is that a sheet of a 30-minute prayer thing I can send you? Is that something that you have practiced and maybe dropped and need to pick up? It's less about what you do and more about cultivating awareness of who you're with. Second question, do you tend to lean in or bail out? I'm a bailout guy. It's a safe place here. I'm a bailout guy. I think awareness is the first step. Are you a leaner inner? You got that? Did you write that down? Or a bailer outer? Third, what story are you telling? And would God's version line up with yours? This question. I tell a lot of stories. But if God were to stand here Would he be telling the same one? Or would he be tapping me on the shoulder and say, well, actually, actually? Finally, question to reflect Where do you need to stand firm for the kingdom despite all objections and others' expectations? This week in our city was the culmination of well over a year of heightened. Division and frustration and, frankly, confusion in the wake of the murder of Botham Jean. And probably many of you, like me, were staying up with the trial, hearing some of the witness testimony, wondering which way is it going to go, murder, manslaughter. There's no shortage of opinions. There's no shortage of what ifs. I'm not interested in all of that. What I was interested in, what I was longing for, what I was waiting for, was some moment in which the kingdom of God might be made manifest for all this city to see. Because a lot of times we see with our own members, Kara and her situation, forgiveness and radical kingdom values breaking through to the surface. So Thursday morning, I woke up and I listened to the radio a lot while I'm making the girls' lunches and things and they were talking about it. My phone, I get a text from Aaron Sarkis. He says, hey dude, have you seen this yet? And what I saw was what led up to this moment. And for those of you who weren't aware, I wanna tell you that after Amber Geiger was sentenced to 10 years in prison, For the murder of Botham John, his 18-year-old brother, Brandt, made this statement to her. And repeatedly he says, I speak for myself. I'm not speaking on behalf of my family. But all the while he's speaking, you may be aware, and you've heard this, but in the hallway after that sentence of 10 years was announced... There were chants of no justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. They were seeking 28 years. She could have gotten up to 99 years. And he takes the stand and he says, I'm not speaking on behalf of my family. And he said to her, I love you. I forgive you. I want the best for you. And again, he says, I haven't even shared this. I don't speak on behalf of my family. He said to her, I don't even want you to go to jail. He said I want what's best for you and then he said the best will be to give your life to Christ. It's what both them would have wanted. And he said again, I love you. And the whole time if you've seen it his voice is shaking, he's pulling at his collar, he knows the gravity and the radical upstreamness of what he's saying and sharing, but then he did this. He said Can I give her a hug, please? And then there was this pregnant pause, this long pause while he was awaiting the judge's response, and she says, yes. And he stood up from the stand, and he walks across the courtroom, and if you watch a YouTube clip of this, you see Amber Geiger running to him. And they embrace, and she's sobbing, and they break and embrace again, and they break and embrace again. and it's as if, in that moment, we see with kingdom vision what it looks like as the chance and expectations and objections were there in the hall. We see what it looks like when justice and mercy embrace. When opposition and pain, when oppression and pain is recycled into forgiveness and healing, there's the kingdom of God. And when people live into that and up to that, theirs is the kingdom of God. They're squarely within it. Amber or Brandt. We need to let Jesus expand our vision of who is blessed despite all the world's opposition and evidence to the contrary. And may you live this week awake to God's presence and aware of our place in the story that God is still shaping of your life. And may you see with kingdom vision that you really are squarely within God's reach and securely within God's kingdom that you are, in fact, blessed.
1: Amen. Blessed are you who make room at your table, for in that way even tax collectors shall be redeemed. Blessed are you who touch the leper, for you make a home for the excluded. Blessed are you who welcome the prodigal, for you, are, for you express the fullness of the Father's love. Blessed are you who make friends with your enemy, for you know the way to lasting peace. Blessed are you who turn the other cheek, For you show more strength than the oppressor. Blessed are you who break bread with the stranger. You will have a foretaste of the kingdom. Blessed are you who seek company with the outcast and unclean. For you shall be accompanying Jesus. Blessed are you who love your neighbor. For you already live in the realm of God. Blessed are you who carry a cross. For you shall see God's wisdom. Blessed are you who wait for the morning. For you shall see the renewal of life. Go in peace.